We're in the middle of this series right now as we walk through the season of Lent called Lessons from the Carpenter. We talked about how Jesus, among many things, when he walked the earth, was a carpenter. That his father Joseph was a carpenter, which means that Jesus would have been trained in this trade and would have practiced for around 15 years before he began his public ministry around the age of 30. Jesus, as a carpenter, his days would have been full of building and of repairing. And we talked about that because of the wood supply in the first century, Jesus would have had to be willing to use the scraps. Because lumber was really hard to find. So nothing would have been able to be wasted. The goal of this series is that we might understand Jesus in a new way as we look through the lens of his trade. And that is what has happened for me over these last couple of weeks. As I've spent my time preparing for sermons and reading the text and reading the book that we're teaching through during Sunday school hour, I have found myself realizing that Jesus really did see the world like a carpenter. That he called like a carpenter, that he healed like a carpenter, that he taught like a carpenter, that he approached ministry like a carpenter because that was who he was. It was who his father had raised him to be. All of the lessons that he must have learned in Joseph's woodshop. Like only a first century carpenter could, Jesus had a keen eye. For seeing value and purpose in people that others only saw as the scraps of the world. And I don't think there is a better example of that than the story of the woman that Jesus finds at the well. The Samaritan woman that comes to the well when Jesus is sitting and resting. Her story is a long one. It's just about the whole chapter of John chapter 4. So we're going to talk through the first part a little bit, and then we're going to read some of the latter sections. But listen for all of the cues that this woman is merely a scrap of the world. And yet Jesus calls her anyway. The story picks up and Jesus is passing through Samaritan territory. His disciples have gone to get something to eat. And Jesus, the scripture said, is tired and thirsty from the journey that he has been on so far during the day. And so he goes to rest by a well. I'm sure because it would have been an easy landmark, right, for the disciples to meet him back at after they had gone to collect whatever supplies that they needed. And while Jesus is resting... A Samaritan woman comes to the well to begin to draw water. Now there is so much in this story that is trying to signal to us, to us as the readers, that this woman was an outcast, that she had been shunned from her community. The first of which is that she was a Samaritan, which which would have been a glaring red flag for any Jewish reader, right? Jews were not supposed to have any sort of interaction with Samaritans, even the Samaritans at the top of the food chain, much less the ones that were at the bottom. The second is that the scripture tells us that it was about noon when the woman came to draw water. 
Well, typically a trip to the well would have been done in the early hours of the morning when the temperature was a bit milder and the work of carrying the water back home wasn't going to be so strenuous. Carrying water at noon, the hottest time of the day, would have been the least efficient time to make your way to the well. But typically, it was in the middle of the day when the outcasts, when the shunned, when the scraps would make their way to the well, mainly to make sure they avoided encountering anybody else. I like to think that maybe Jesus knew that. And that's why he chose to sit by a well at midday to rest. But the story keeps going. She gets to the well. She's preparing to draw her water. And Jesus asks her for a drink. He says, give me a drink. And her response is exactly what we would expect. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? So right there, right, we know, we get it, that she is fully aware of how she is seen, of how her worth is perceived, and where her place is within the community that she lives. And Jesus responds, if you knew who was asking you this question, you would ask him for a drink, and he would give you living water. And at first, the woman completely misses it. It goes right over her head. She, she does not pick up on what Jesus is saying at all. I think probably assuming that this interaction is just going to end with her being put down just like every other interaction with any other Jew would. She points out to Jesus that he doesn't even have a bucket to use to draw water out of the well. And then she asks him, where exactly do you even get this living water from? And Jesus responds, And says, everyone who drinks of this water, this water from the well, they will eventually be thirsty again. But anyone who drinks of this living water, they will never thirst again. And then the woman responds and says, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty again. She's starting to get it, right? She's starting to see that Jesus may actually have something to offer her that she's not going to find anywhere else. But the interaction continues. I told you all this was a long story, but you got to read all of it to really understand what exactly is happening here. Jesus tells her to go and call her husband and then come back to him. And she says to Jesus, well, I actually don't have a husband. And then Jesus says to her, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband right now, but you've previously had five. The text leads us to believe that her past husbands haven't died, but rather she has been divorced five times, which is another alert to us as the reader that this woman should be seen and treated as nothing more than a scrap. More than likely, she was being abused by the men of her community. That she was being used by various men, and then when they were finished with her, they would cut her off and cut her loose. 
There's a lot that we don't know about this woman's past, and I think that's important for us to own as the modern reader. There's just a whole lot that, that we don't know. We don't know whether these were formal or informal divorces. We don't know what kind of rumors were swirling around town about this woman and her love life. We don't know what kind of emotional trauma this woman was carrying because of her past. We don't know what the abuse might have been that this woman experienced in these past relationships. We don't even know if she was partially to blame or if she truly is solely the victim in all of this. What we do know is that there is a lot of hurt. We know that there was a lot of hurt within all of those relationships, and we know for certain that there was a lot of hurt on the heels of those relationships. What we also know with confidence is that whether she was partially to blame or not, she would be the sole carrier of the judgment from the community. She would bear the mark of shame, not the men. She would have the one whose life would have been wrecked by these past relationships, not her husband's. She would have been viewed as broken, not the men. If I'm being honest with you, this is a really curious encounter for me to sit with and for me to read. Jesus already knows about this woman's past, and yet he tells her to go and get her husband anyway. He knows that this is a source of hurt for this woman. And instead of leaning away from it, it seems like Jesus leans into it. He doesn't avoid the place of pain within this woman's life. And I don't think this is Jesus trying to call this woman out. I don't think this is Jesus trying to test her to see if she's actually going to tell him the truth or if she's going to try and hide some of her past from him. I think that Jesus wants to make sure that she knows that he is fully aware of the baggage that she carries, that he knows all of the labels that she wears, the brokenness that she harbors, and he sees her for more than that. The woman can't believe that Jesus knows all of these things about her. She calls him a prophet. She tells Jesus that she knows that one day the Messiah is coming, and when he does, he will proclaim all things. And Jesus responds to her and says, I am he. I am that Messiah. And she believes him. And that's where I want us to pick up reading this morning. We're in John chapter 4. We're going to read two blocks out of this story, verses 27 to 30. And verses 39 to 42. Let's read together. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left. She left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything that I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and they were on their way to him. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there, excuse me, he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is the word of God for you, the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. Like I said, Kevin, our senior pastor, and I are teaching through the book that we've based this series off off of at 9 o'clock down in the fellowship hall during Sunday school hour every Sunday morning of Lent. One of the illustrations that is used in the chapters that we covered for this week is something called Burlwood, which is something that I had never heard of. And then I started to read about it, and I realized that I had seen this before, that I actually did know what this was. Burlwood is a phenomenon that happens in several different types of wood. It happens in oak and maple and walnut and redwood and ash and cherry. It happens in a lot of wood that is used to build and construct things in our homes and things around us. It happens when one of those trees has a burl, which is a growth on the side of the tree caused by some sort of stress. It can be from an injury, it can be from some sort of invasive fungus or disease, it can be from damage from insects that may have got inside of the tree, or just from general general stress and pressure that is put on the wood. They can form because a branch didn't grow the right way or because a tree, a neighboring tree fell and partially hit the tree that was standing and it developed a burrow where the tree hit it. From the outside, they look like these large, rounded, like warts or tumors on the side of the tree, usually like two to three feet big. I'm betting that you've probably seen one of these on a nice, big, old oak tree sometime over the course of your life. They're imperfections. They're signs of damage. They're a notification that this tree was at one time sick, that this tree experienced some stress over the course of of its life. When you see a burl on the side of a tree, you know that that tree has had a hard time. And if you didn't know better, like me, you would think that something like this would make the lumber unusable for building. But it's actually the opposite. Burl wood is one of the most highly sought after wood for carpenters and for builders alike. Because not only does the burl itself make the wood thicker and stronger, so it would resist splitting more than normal lumber, but it causes these intense and beautiful swirls in the grain of the wood that are unique and one of a kind and only found when a tree has experienced some sort of stress over the course of its life, which makes it one of the most expensive woods out there. This is the wood that's often used to make musical instruments because the grain is so beautiful. Furniture makers take it and slice it thin and use it as veneer, use it as the finish on their pieces. Back in the day, car manufacturers used to use burl wood as the wood paneling on the side of those station wagons that my grandma used to drive, right? What I realized is this, reading that chapter and holding the story of the woman at the well at the same time, is that if anything is clear about this woman that Jesus finds at the well, it is that she is covered in burls. She's covered in them, right? I mean, did you hear what the disciples said, the first line of our text? They couldn't even believe that Jesus was even giving her the time of day, 
I mean, her life is full of imperfections, of shame, of disgrace, of damage, of stress. And she's been judged for her burrows. She's been shunned for her burrows. She's been deemed worthless, right? A mere scrap of society because of all of those imperfections that have happened to her over the course of her life. But through the eyes of the carpenter, she is seen as a beloved child of God. I want you to hear this hope this morning, friends, because I believe that her story is our story if we're willing to follow this carpenter. Whatever labels you carry, whatever shame you foster, whatever doubt you perpetuate about yourself, whatever, whatever others have whispered about you, whatever sin is in your life, whatever your story is, and no matter what others may think of it, Jesus believes in you just as much as you believe in him. Hear that this morning. When he looks at you and he sees the real you, burls and all, imperfections and all, damage and all, when he finds you stumbling to a well in the middle of the day to get a drink, he sees you as only a carpenter could, with worth and purpose, with with potential and promise. So much so that he offers you a drink of that living water. That's what I see in the story of the woman at the well. Jesus accepts this woman with her past, just as she is. And then he calls her to something greater. Something greater than we could imagine, and certainly something greater than she could imagine. In this gospel, in the gospel of John, this woman is the first evangelist. She's the first preacher. She's the first one to spread the good news that the Messiah is here. She tells her story. She shares what Jesus has done for her, how this carpenter from Nazareth, how he accepted her, how he knows everything there is to know about her, and how he accepted her anyway, despite her imperfections how he saw purpose in her life. And when she told her story, when she told that story, others couldn't help but believe. None of us are perfect. But in the eyes of the carpenter, that doesn't matter. That's the hope for me this morning. He accepts us with our past, and he carves out a future for us that we don't deserve. All we have to do, friends, all we have to do is be a people who are willing to take a drink of that living water. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in The Gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week. 
and we look forward to seeing you soon.